Have you ever heard a musical artist described as having great chops? What does that mean? Well, the term chops is slang in the music business that refers to an artist that has developed great skills over time, whether they are a musician, composer, producer, or other titles associated with the music business. This is Scott Grimaldi, your host of Got Chops. Join me as I interview one musical artist per episode that I've had the pleasure of either performing, recording, or work with in my career. Plus, I'll be interviewing artists I've always wanted to speak with. We'll discover how each artist developed their chops, listen to their stories, and much more. This is Got Chops. Today's special guest artist is an international fingerstyle guitar champion and virtuoso whose performances have enthralled audiences from Stockholm to the Threadbow Jazz Festival in Australia. His fingerstyle guitar weaves a rich tapestry of beautiful melody, dynamic rhythm, and creative improvisation. Fusing influences from South America and around the world, this guitarist creates an entrancing travelogue as an instrumentalist, band leader, singer-songwriter, and educator. He has been featured on tours and recordings with Indian violin virtuoso Dr. L. Subramaniam, alongside Larry Coriel and Herbie Hancock, and has played opposite the legendary Taj Mahal and Les Paul, among other greats. He is a repeat featured performer and judge at the Indiana State Fingerstyle Guitar Competition, as well as a main stage performer at the Walnut Valley Festival in Wichita, Kansas, where he won first place in the 2009 International Fingerstyle Guitar Competition. I have witnessed the brilliance of this multi-talented musician for many years as we perform together on various types of music gigs. He has the uncanny ability of going from an acoustic fingerstyle picking to playing monster solos on the electric guitar. When it came time for me to select the musicians for my studio album, The Color of Midnight, this gentleman was the first one that came to mind when selecting a guitarist that could do it all, and he delivered. Please welcome my special guest artist and friend, Mark Skanga. Good morning, Mark. How are you? Morning, Scott. I'm doing great. Nice to hear from you. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for doing this interview. I really appreciate it. Uh, It gives me a chance to... Uh, share with my listeners who you are, what you are, what you're all about, uh, the things that I know and all your uh, friends and family know. And um, it would be great to share the stories that you have to tell today about how you achieved your chops and the stories that led up to where you are today. And just to fill my listeners in, Mark and I have been friends for many years and we have worked on many types of music gigs uh, throughout the years. A couple of words come to mind when I think of Mark Skanga. When you look at Mark play, whether it's on his um, YouTube channel or playing in person, he exudes such passion. You could see it in every note that he plays. And he is just totally focused. I mean, every great musician is, but uh, he is just so into what he's doing every second of the way. So it's a pleasure for me to have you on uh, the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Scott. So let me ask you, when you hear the music slang, Got Chops, what does that mean to you? Well, you know, that's a that's an interesting question there. So um, we can take that as uh, meaning that someone has a great technical ability, right? Their chops. Um, and... But it's one of those phrases that I think has uh, developed uh, more than that. And and now uh, we take it to mean that uh, someone's an accomplished player, uh, for lack of a better way to say that. 
you know, I mean, think about it. The original phrase comes from the idea of your chops, literally your your lips and your mouth, and that's the way we described horn players, right? Exactly. Um, you know, and now we apply it to musicians of all stripes, and I think it's come to mean a lot more than just that person has technique, but rather that, uh, you know, they're bringing something musical to the table. I agree. So let me ask you, uh, did you grow up in a uh, musical household, and where did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, till I was about 10. Uh, that's when we moved to New Jersey, and uh, I've lived in northern New Jersey ever since then. Um, was it a musical household? Not directly, but <clears throat> there were uh, some very musical things about it. Um, I grew up um, in an extended family with my grandparents while we lived in Brooklyn, and uh, my grandfather uh, had joined a community band when he was a young man and had first immigrated to America just as something to do. They taught him to play the clarinet, and it was uh, a social uh, thing for him on Sundays to play in this community band. He later joined the Army because uh, that was a path to citizenship, and he served in World War One. So he constantly reminded me, hey, learn a band instrument. This saved my life. So, you know, World War One, which was a very bloody conflict, um, he was in the band, and, and it literally saved his life. So uh, my grandfather had some musicality, and my grandmother always wandered around the house singing beautiful Italian songs. But, you know... No one was a professional or anything like that. My folks, on the other hand, uh, were great music lovers, and there was always music playing in the house. Do you remember WNEWAM? Oh, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I'm always bringing this station up to people because as a boy, my parents played that station, and I heard Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett and Ella Fitzgerald. That's where I first heard Brazilian music that you know, came to be a great influence in my life and in my playing. I remember hearing Sergio Mendez and uh, the Getz Gilberto records. Um, you know, and they played some top 40 as well. But these guys, NEWAM, really oriented towards more of the uh, great American songbook, jazzy type of uh, music. And that was a wonderful uh, kind of an education to have as a small boy. Oh, yeah. It sounds like the um, some of that, like my childhood, my father in the car always played that station and then went out and bought the same sort of records. So what got you interested in playing the guitar? Uh, I guess if I had to say one thing got me interested, it was seeing the Beatles. You know, they were on television all the time, and there was just something about it that wow, I want to do that, you know. And to this day, my mom and I have this argument where I say that she insisted that we had music lessons and then I insisted on the guitar. And she keeps telling me, no, no, you always wanted to play the guitar so badly that you asked me for music lessons. So this is an amusing little uh, family uh, disagreement that we have. Um, I can confirm that as a little boy, I had toy guitars all over the place. So um, around the time I was eight, uh, my mom took me to a local music studio um, in Brooklyn, and uh, I began to take formal lessons. Eight? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, kind of young to do that, but, uh, you know, I was a pretty focused kid. Um, you know, it's funny. Um, I went to a parochial school, so we were used to being told what to do, and you made sure you did it or you got in trouble. <laughs> So when I started the guitar lessons and, you know, the teacher said, you have to practice every day. I remember my mother sitting me down and she'd set the timer on the stove. And, you know, I had to practice till that timer went off and she would, you know, kibitz. So uh, if I was playing and, um, you know, I hit a wrong note in the beginning, she would, you know, honey, I don't think that was the right note. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, after a while, I was you practicing your lesson? And uh, I got to where I could say, sure I am. And I would fake something for her. <laughs> That's funny. And uh, that, that was the way that I assured her I was practicing for my lesson. When I was young, besides playing woodwinds, I also played guitar and bass. And what I have found throughout my entire career 
when you take a, a young guitar or bass student, because it's so visual, like the piano, um, a child's emphasis is more on looking at the fretboard or the keyboard if you're playing piano. If you're playing a woodwind or a brass wind, you can't be looking at your fingers, and so the emphasis is more on the reading and the subdivision. Was that the emphasis or part of the emphasis when you were just beginning guitar lessons? I would say it was completely the emphasis when I began. I started with those traditional uh, books, like Mel Bay books, and you know, learned to read single notes. And even uh, when my teacher showed me chords, he wrote chord charts similar to like what a guitarist would see in a big band or, you know, any kind of a serious uh, arrangement, those type of chord charts. And uh, so my first, I would say, two years of flying was all oriented to reading music. So it's a funny thing. I got away from it uh, at various points and then came back to it, you know, um, as a teenager, um, I began to study with, uh, I don't know if you know the name, Joe Cinderella, what a wonderful teacher he was. Oh, sure. Joe was, a, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. He was a wonderful, uh, session musician and taught a lot of the guitarists in North Jersey at that time. And, uh, Joe really got me going on reading again after, you know, a hiatus where I hadn't touched it. And then after that, I began to study some classical guitar. So reading, you know, figured in at a lot of different points in my life. Although, you know, sometimes I feel like I wish I had had more uh, of an organic ear training type of thing. And I've always emphasized that alongside reading with my own students, because music is, after all, you know, uh, a sonic experience. So you should be able to hear it and be able to play it back. That's equally important to reading. You're right. Did you play guitar in your school jazz band, let's say in middle school and or high school? Uh, a little bit in high school. Um, and at that time, uh, I didn't find that a very satisfying experience. <laughs> which isn't the nicest thing I can say. Um, I had a lot of bands that I played in at that time, you know, um, bands that we would put together, you know. Uh, I didn't find the the high school jazz band that satisfying. Um, I left high school a year early uh, for college at William Patterson, and then at William Patterson, I played in every ensemble I could talk my way or audition my way into. Hmm. Okay. Also in high school, uh, my high school did an unusual thing, and they put on some musicals. They did Promises, Promises, um, you know, with the Broadway book, and brought in some ringer union musicians to play the hardest part, you know, like the first trumpet chair and like that. Sure. And uh, then they did uh, Oklahoma and Little Abner, and um, I forget which one now, Oklahoma or Little Abner. I had already, um, you know, gone off to college, but um, the music director actually hired me to come back and play in the pit orchestra. That was really fun. Um, So those were the big, more important reading experiences for me in high school, uh, more so than jazz band was. Occasionally a guitarist is asked to play banjo or ukulele, did you ever had a chance to do that? You know, that's funny that you mentioned that. There was a banjo uh, in the guitar book for uh, Oklahoma, if I'm remembering. And uh, I just faked it as best as I could on guitar. Um, and I, I have, in later years, occasionally fooled around with a little bit of a double. But uh, that has not been my... Uh, strong suit. That's not the direction I really went in. And I, I love uh, banjo in particular, you know, great banjo player, you know, Bela Flack. I've got a friend uh, who's now out of uh, Georgia, uh, James McKinney, who played with Vassar um, Clements and a lot of the uh, big names in bluegrass. And you hear banjo players like that and play with people like that. That's pretty amazing. So, um, I guess the short answer is I haven't done much of that. 
My wife and I go to see different bluegrass artists at these festivals, and these banjo players and ukulele players, they play like Paganini. It's unbelievable. Absolutely, yes. A lot of virtuosity going on there. Just as a side note, if you ever need to borrow a banjo, um, <laughs> my parents <laughs> bought me a banjo when I was uh, young, uh, Dueling Banjos. You probably remember when that song came out. Sure. So they went out and <laughs> bought a banjo for me, and I'm going, what am I going to do with this thing? But I still have it. <laughs> so if you want to use it, come on over. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. You've always been quite the, the multi-instrumentalist. So. <laughs> yeah, I forgot to put that on my business card. Sorry. <laughs> How long did you practice your guitar per day when you were, began to get serious about music studies? Well, you know, as a little boy, the teacher used to say you should practice an hour a day. Uh, my mother would give me a break and say, okay, I'm going to set the timer for 45 minutes. But then, you know, by the time it was something that I wanted to do. So, you know, think my, uh, you know, by the time I'm in junior high school now and, you know, I learned a little bit of rock and roll. Uh, I took some lessons with a guy next door who showed me pentatonic scales and 12-bar blues. And now I was playing the guitar morning, noon, and night. It's just what I wanted to do all the time. So, you know, no lack of, um, no lack of time spent practicing the guitar. Excellent. What musical artists were you inspired by then, and are they the same artists that continue to inspire you today? Uh, well, that's an, a, a good question. Uh, you know, again, I would say it started specifically guitar-wise with the Beatles. You know, that's where I really became aware of guitar. And shortly following the Beatles, I had a great affinity for James Taylor. And certainly both of those artists are still uh, big in my mind. Um, I mentioned that I heard Brazilian music when I was very young, my parents playing it on the radio. And I, that became more and more of an influence to me uh, as I got older. Um, by the time I was in college and studying jazz, I realized that it was the Brazilian jazz that I liked the best. Um, and I could name artists after artists in that uh, style, although not so much other than João Gilberto, who, you know, kind of wrote the book on bossa nova rhythm guitar. Um, that wasn't so much oriented towards uh, an instrumentalist as much as it was oriented towards. I just loved the uh, the rhythm of the music and the beautiful melodies and harmonies that went along with it. You know, later on, I got interested in uh, more specific guitarists, you know, jazz guitarists that meant a lot to me. Uh, I always enjoyed Pat Metheny a lot. Um, Ralph Towner uh, is less of a household name. He was the guitarist, is the guitarist, I should say, in the band Oregon, uh, which was an offshoot of the Paul Winter Consort. And Ralph Towner uh, was definitely an influence on me uh, because he's one of the first people I ever heard improvising on a classical guitar. What was the pivotal moment that you knew you were going to do music as a career? You know, it's funny. Um, I can remember being uh, in the basement of my parents' house having a rehearsal with some friends, you know, a little band, a garage band or a basement band, if you will. And it suddenly just struck me like a light went off. Like, I love doing this more than anything else. I can't tell you exactly how old I was, somewhere between 12 and 14, I guess. And, you know, I just knew that's what I want to do that early on, believe it or not. Yeah, it's great. We all have those little pivotal moments. Absolutely. And, you know, um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention, you know, growing up and listening to B.B. King, the first concert I ever saw, by the way. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, Clapton and Dwayne Allman and Carlos Santana. Those were the big guys for me as a teenager. And then in the middle of all of this, 
a friend of mine says, hey, this great guitarist is playing in Carnegie Hall. Why don't we uh, ask our dates? And I'm sorry, it wasn't Carnegie Hall. It was Avery uh, Fisher Hall. Why don't we ask our dates and we'll spend a, an evening in New York? And that great guitarist was Andre Segovia. And uh, that was a household name when I was a boy. You know, he was the maestro of the classical guitar, the guy who brought the classical guitar back to the concert stage. Yes. And uh, we went to see him. And that was mind-boggling. That really, that set me down the road of going back to the acoustic guitar, of studying classical guitar, all of which became a great influence on the rest of my career. You can't go wrong with a Segovia, right? I mean, that's... <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> he was so, you know, magnificent and, and still is, although there's, you know, I occasionally hear some you know, a negative talk about him, but it's sort of like uh, the people who talk about Freud negatively. Oh, you know, Freud didn't really understand this, that, and the other. Yeah, but before Freud started talking about psychology, the, the concept wasn't there, you know, and, and that was kind of the thing with Segovia. Before he brought the classical guitar back to the concert stage, there, the idea of classical guitar had completely disappeared. It's almost like in the uh, saxophone world, you know, saxophone was uh, originally used in the military and then uh, as a novelty. And then uh, they try to break it into the classical world. And people are going, what are you nuts? We don't do that here in classical. And it took years and years and years to um, for the saxophone to be respected as a classical instrument, which is not widely known. It's more widely known for contemporary and jazz and stuff like that. But... I certainly understand that. Yeah, yeah. Well, similar things, right? The instruments that, that were not as respected. And it's funny when you think about the popularity of both of these instruments, of saxophone and guitar. So, you know, they obviously have something that captures the, uh, the listener. Absolutely, I agree. So when you were at William Patterson, did you have any professors that were just great mentors, anything like that? And did you get one degree there or two degrees? You know, I, I'm, I, I, I hate to admit it, I never finished my degree at William Patterson. Um, and yes, I had a lot of teachers who were great mentors and great influences, all of them, really. And, uh, you know, with other people that I knew from William Patterson, you know, uh, Sue Williams was there with me and uh, Bud Malton, are musicians that I still see regularly, Charlie Descarfino. We all attended William Patterson uh, roughly around the same time, and those are people I see today. And one thing we all say is we didn't realize how good we had it then, how great the teachers were. Um, Don Fernudo was a... Um, he taught music theory, and he taught ear training. Um, when I left school, I continued to study privately with him. He was a Juilliard-trained doctorate in music, and the man was brilliant. And I liked him because besides, uh, you know, being Juilliard-trained and obviously the classical side, he had put himself through college playing jazz piano. So, you know, there, I, I made a connection with him right away. Um so many great teachers there. I had the pleasure to study with the late, great Harry Leahy uh, for a semester or two while I was there, who's a, a name that everybody doesn't know. Um, Harry, uh, his claim to fame was he's on a, a Phil Woods album, and uh, Harry played a lot with the great saxophonist Eric Kloss, but he was a musical genius, and everyone who studied with him uh, you know, still keeps his name alive. When I was a kid... Uh, I remember that name. Uh, I used to hear that name quite often because friends of mine that were serious guitarists all studied with him. So he was part of the inner circle. Absolutely. Yeah. Other great teachers at the time, I was at William Patterson, uh, Dr. Jeff Kresge, uh, another guy with a doctorate in music. Um, and his master's was in English. So he was one of the most erudite uh, professors I ever had. He spoke beautifully and had a very uh, literary sense of music in the way he described it. Uh, I also studied with Dr. Kresge um, 
after I left school privately for a time. Uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, teacher. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, I would leave a lot of people off. There were so many great people. We recently mourned the death of uh, Gary Fitzpatrick, who was the pianist in residence there. And I can remember, you know, William Patterson, every Thursday afternoon, there was a concert, a uh, concert series, and it ranged. Uh, you know, sometimes there would be jazz concerts, often there would be classical concerts. And when a guest artist came, whether it was an instrumentalist or a vocalist in the classical world, uh, Gary Fitzpatrick would be their accompanist. And I remember being astonished uh, because you would see that he was reading the pieces and it was happening so often that you said, oh, my God, how much could he possibly have prepared for each of these? They're happening so frequently. And he was such a magnificent reader, accompanist, and just pianist in general, you know, hearing his accompaniments were making the um, the concerts a wonderful thing. Uh, Thad Jones and Mel Lewis were there, and, you know, I had the pleasure of having classes with them. Uh, another great teacher I'd be remiss in leaving out is the wonderful saxophonist uh, Bobby Keller. I don't know if you know Bobby, in later years... Oh, sure, I knew Bobby, yeah. absolutely, yep. In later years, um, you know, we would meet on the gig trail occasionally, and uh, w recently we've been in touch. So, you know, it was great, great bunch of teachers there um, in those days at William Patterson, and I understand still today. Let me talk a little bit about your guitar arrangements. So I look at your YouTube, I've listened to you, I, I've uh, stood next to you for years listening to you play. So I know your guitar arrangements, and they're just absolutely fantastic. So I've got to ask you, you memorize all this because I've never seen you read anything of what you're playing. So are they written down and then you've memorized them, or do you change them every time? Uh, okay, well, a couple of questions there. Um Generally, these kind of solo guitar pieces, um, whether it's a fingerstyle arrangement that I invent uh, or learn from someone else, or if it's a classical piece, um, you, you won't see me reading them because I have to practice them and get them under my fingers well enough to be way beyond reading them. I learned years ago that when you memorized it, you were able to play it better. Many of my own arrangements... I've never written down, but rather I conceive them from a song that I know. So in other words, I might know the, the tune and the changes to a piece. And then I say, well, what can I do with this? Could I develop a bass line? Could I, you know, uh, put this into a Latin rhythm and how would I deal with it? And I do that mostly without writing anything down. Now, occasionally, because I do some extremely contrapuntal uh, things in these arrangements, like when I play uh, Day Tripper, there were times when I was working that up that I sat down and wrote out a couple of measures of the piece um, as though I were writing out a classical guitar uh, arrangement in order to um, get the syncopation and the uh, counterpoint to happen. Um, but it would be pretty rare for me to write the whole piece out. Um, I have written a couple of pieces out, and this is something that I want to get involved in because there is interest uh, from other guitarists in learning arrangements. Um, you know, and generally uh, the arrangements are written out in uh, music and in tablature, uh, which is not my favorite thing. I don't think that's necessarily the best way to learn, but uh, it's very, very popular. And uh, so this is something I have on my uh, docket to do is to get some of these arrangements written down. But um, most of them I work up on my own. And then you say, are they the same? Well, generally what happens is if I come up with what I think is a good idea for how the piece should uh, flow, in other words, what the arrangement is going to be, if that's a, a walking bass against a melody, or, um, you know, there's usually some musical idea that's propelling the piece, um, then the, uh, you know, the basic head of the piece will be um, kind of fixed. But because it's what I do and because of my uh, background playing jazz, uh, I usually then will 
go off and improvise on the piece. You know, generally, um, I, I do it, you know, in the jazz style of keeping the form together um, and staying in the harmony of the tune. But um, at that point, I will improvise. You know, I remember um, Joe Pass, um, who had those albums in the 70s, Virtuoso, and then it became a series that was Virtuoso 2 and so on. Um, and he was, a, he played alone, you know, so he had this beautiful concept on the guitar for chord melody, but then he would improvise. And, you know, if you tapped your foot or, or kept your place with him, he was staying with the tune completely as he went through his improvisation. And I try to do the same thing. I remember those albums. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Really great stuff. Um, so, you know, there is an improvised uh, part to what I do in most of the pieces, not all of them. Some of the pieces, you know, I just, I play them, you know, as an arrangement and that's that. But I would say that uh, probably 85% of the time uh, I do go off into improvised sections. Can you share with my listeners about your experience of being a fingerstyle guitar champion? Hmm. Uh, well, that's been uh, a very gratifying uh, part of uh, the last couple of decades for me. Um, one day I saw an article in Acoustic Guitar Magazine, and it said the winning arrangement for the National Finger Picking Championship. And I picked up the magazine, and it was arrangement of Linus and Lucy from uh, the Peanuts show. And I had my own arrangement of Linus and Lucy that I had just uh, recorded a year or two before that. And when I looked at this, it looked like it was a very similar arrangement to mine. And I said, well, you know, if this person's a national uh, finger-picking champion, why can't I be? So I found out about uh, the festival where this takes place, which is the Walnut Valley Festival in Winfield, Kansas. And by the way, this is the same place where... Um, when you hear, for example, that Alison Krauss was a national fiddle champ or that uh, Bela Fleck was a national banjo champ, this is the same festival where all of those uh, contests are taking place. So um, in 2000, I traveled out to Kansas and uh, competed. And it was a wonderful experience. I met a lot of great musicians out there. Um, and I discovered that this festival was a lot more than just uh, the contest, and it has a, uh, besides that there are uh, wonderful shows going on for the uh, three official days of the, actually it's four official days of the festival, there's also um, a community of people camped out, as many as 15,000 people, with acoustic jam sessions going on night and day, and I met a lot of wonderful musicians who I still go to see every year, and we jam. Uh, together, but uh, I continue uh, going and uh, competing in the fingerstyle championship, um, and I had a lot of uh, encouragement and support from everyone who heard me. But I was not going anywhere in the contest, <laughs> so it was funny. Um, but uh, the eighth time I tried, and I was very offhanded that time because I didn't know whether I was going to make the festival that year. It was a last-minute decision. And I hadn't specially prepared pieces. And at that, by that time, I thought, well, I'm too jazzy, and they don't like uh, nylon string guitars. And uh, so I just I competed, you know, sort of on a whim, and I played pieces that I knew pretty well, and that was the year that I won. So I guess, uh, you know, there's a lesson in being relaxed and not having too much uh, uh, hanging in the balance. That's how I became a fingerstyle champion, which is, it has been a lot of fun. It's been a great honor. Uh, you know, I've done some judging, like I was just down in Indiana for the uh, Indiana uh, State uh, String Fest, and they have a fingerstyle competition there. You know, I was there judging that and then performing in their concert. So, you know, a lot of honors with this, but I keep telling the competitors hey, you know, remember, music is not a competitive sport. You know, do this because it's fun and because there's a lot of, uh, you get a lot of camaraderie with the other guitarists. And especially when you're doing something like fingerstyle guitar that you do alone, it's really nice then to come together with other musicians and, you know, have that feeling. It's a very, it's a much smaller world. Would you say that? 
you know, much smaller than, let's say, the electric guitar world. Oh, oh yes, absolutely. Although it's, it's been growing. Uh, it's been growing a lot. You know, when I started doing it, when I started playing these arrangements, you know, uh, I only knew of two or three guitarists. You know, there was Leo Kotke and uh, there was uh, Michael Hedges and uh, Tuck Andrus. And uh, now uh, there's lots of finger style guitarists that are out there. Tommy Emmanuel has made a lot of noise and I think has more fame than any of the uh, people that I described before. And uh, you hear more and more, uh, especially if you're a YouTube person, there are people coming down the pike all the time uh, doing these solo acoustic guitar arrangements. So um, it, it definitely uh, much smaller than the electric guitar world, which is gigantic. But it's, it's a growing world. And the other interesting thing that I see about this is that a lot of classical guitarists crossover into uh, fingerstyle guitar, which is, a, 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 you know, kind of a natural uh, progression, if you will. Can you talk about the guitar that you played at that festival? Is it the same one that you play today? Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, it is. Um, that's a Spanish-made uh, instrument. It's a Pedro de Miguel they're a small uh, luthier in Madrid. It was two guys, Pedro and Miguel, that worked um, in the Ramirez factory. Ramirez was the, uh, you know, the very, very famous Spanish classical guitar company. At one point, Segovia played a Ramirez, and so did George Harrison. Uh, these guys went on their own, and um, I was fortunate enough to find this guitar in New York, um, and... Uh, you know, it was a, a, a very strange tale. You know, someone sent me to a, a shop in the village. Evidently, the guy who owned this guitar uh, must have uh, used it as collateral on a loan. And I went to a clothes shop in the village and found the guitar, but the strings on it were so god-awful, I couldn't get any idea. But, you know, I knew that I, this was a good luthier, so I asked him if he'd put strings on it, and I came back. And that's how I found the guitar. Very, uh, you know, sort of a cloak and dagger thing. Uh, it, you know, I go into the village, knock on the door. I get led into a shop with um, tables everywhere stacked with junk. But I can't see what the junk is because there are sheets on top of everything. And this woman uh, who had possession of the guitar, who is not the owner, as I understood, because I was in touch with the owner. That's who I spoke to on the phone. And uh, so I, I kind of lucked into this guitar. It's a, it's a great instrument. And uh, sadly, uh, one of the luthiers, I'm, I'm remiss that I don't remember the name, but one of the luthiers passed of a heart attack uh, a couple of years ago. So um, I guess this is uh, somewhat of a more rare instrument because of that. I'm not sure if the shop is still operating because of that. That's a great story. I know you've worked with iconic artists that include Les Paul and Larry Coryell and Herbie Hancock. I mean, that's quite a list. What was that like and the feeling of locking in with them on stage? Wow. Well, you know, I can tell you Les Paul uh, was a lot of fun. Um, what, a, uh, what a generous, what a funny guy. Um, and, you know, Les was sort of a neighbor of mine. I used to kid with him that if I took the canoe, it was only a mile from my house to his house. Um, and, uh, you know, Les had a tradition of bringing um, guests onto the bandstand, which is something that I try to do a lot myself. Um, you know, unfortunately, in the years that I was doing this with Les, he wasn't playing much. So, you know, he was on stage, he'd play a couple of numbers. He basically was acting more as an MC and a comedian. So I, I, I more played with his band. He featured me playing with his band, which was a great honor. Um, and I'm very grateful to him for having done that. Uh, you know, what an iconic figure Les Paul was. You know, Larry Coriel, I met uh, on a tour uh, for uh, Dr. L. Subramanian. Uh, Subramanian is widely considered uh, the greatest uh, South Indian violinist. That's the Carnatic style of uh, Indian music, which is, you know, um, it's an Indian tradition uh, that has a tremendous amount of improvising in it. And he's uh, 
an international star. He's written uh, pieces that he's played with um, orchestras all over the world. Subramaniam uh, often toured with a group of American jazz musicians that I was a part of. I've toured and recorded with him. Um, <clears throat> the last trip I took with him to India, uh, this was in the 90s, um, Coriel was also part of that tour. And wow, what an experience to be next to a guitarist like Larry Coriel, who was uh, also a very um, encouraging and uh, positive energy. And, you know, some of these musicians, you don't get the full measure of their uh, uh their depth, their um, greatness, until you're on the bandstand next to them. And then you, it's, it's a sensation as much as it is a sound. Um, and I, I definitely put Larry Coriel into that category. He was really something, and it's very sad that we lost him uh, so early on. Um, I was backstage at the Iridium when Larry was filling in for Les Paul. He had invited me to sit in with him. And at the end of a jazz standard, Larry starts a kind of a solo obligato that becomes his solo arrangement of Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. Oh, my God. It was absolutely stunning. I sat backstage shaking my head. I said, I can't believe I'm going to come out and play after this. He was really something. Wow. Well, when I was a teenager, I also had Larry Coriel records. And you tell your friends about it that are, you know, not in that world. They're like, who? Who's that? The other thing I want to uh, touch upon, you mentioned uh, Les Paul, of course, you know, what a, a great innovator of the guitar. You mentioned that he had a, um, it was kind of comedic. He had a great sense of humor. Do you incorporate humor in your performances or in your music life? I hope so. <laughs> you know, and it's going to be uh, up to the audience to decide. But yes, uh, I like to take things light. Um, I like to... Even even sometimes in the arrangements, you know, uh, like that arrangement of Linus and Lucy that I mentioned, you know, I mean, it's kind of a, a funny piece. I, I used to play also like the theme of the Flintstones all the time. I think there has to be some uh, humor in what you play and the way you play. But also, you know, I like to uh, create a at, an atmosphere that's fun uh, for the audience and for the other musicians. Because if we're not having fun doing this, you know, something's wrong. What are we doing? I don't want to take myself too seriously. That's right. So could you share a few stories, like funny stories or anything interesting about the music business or musicians? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, you're putting me on this, the spot here, Scott. Uh, uh, just one. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of funny stories um, about musicians. Um, wow. Uh, let me see if I can narrow this down a little bit. Um, well, you know, um, I had a really silly, uh, funny experience where I was, um, playing in a wedding band, um, and it was time to sing the first dance and the, uh, I turned to the singer, you know, we had a, a singer with us that night. I said, have you got how sweet it is? And, he says, yeah, key of C. I said, how sweet it is is a funny song because it's usually done in the key of G, but the first chord is C. Right. I said, you mean first chord is C? He says, no, no, I know my keys in the key of C. I said, okay. And then I made an announcement that the bride and groom were going to dance. And uh, I start the, on the guitar, I started the introduction to the song and the band starts. And I turned to where the singer was just a moment ago when I had this conversation and he's not there. And I see one of the other musicians with an expression on her face. And I'm watching her eyes, and I turn around and look where she's looking. And here's this musician walking across the dance floor, which is now lit up by video camera lights, and he's on the cell phone. You know, and I think, oh, my God, you know. Well, fortunately, I know the song. So I turn to the band. I go, let's go to the key of G. We go back to the key of G, and I start to sing the song. Well... About halfway into the song, the singer comes sprinting back across the band floor, across the, the lighted thing, grabs the microphone, and in mid-phrase, picks up the singing and starts to sing. And I'm looking at this guy and shaking my head like, what the heck are you on about? And in between phrases, he has the nerve to come off the microphone and say, this is the wrong key. 
a real pro, huh? <laughs> you know, it turned out later that he was on the phone with AAA because he had a flat and he was trying to get them to fix his flat. But, you know, what a crazy bunch of things to happen on the bandstand all at one time. Well, funny yeah. enough, that's how I met you. You might remember that. Um, it was with a club date orchestra that you and I were both working with. And that's I think, right. And I think you were subbing for my guitarist for whatever reason. I think his wife was having a baby or whatever. And they said, oh, this great guitarist, vocalist, Mark Skanga, he's going to fill in. And just like you said, okay, does this guy know the repertoire? Can he sing this? Can he play this? And you came in and, you know, right away with your confidence, I, I just knew you know, you're just going to fit in, you know, one, two, three. And um, if anyone doesn't really know what a club date is, that's a term for when you are, are in a wedding band, you play a bar mitzvah, a corporate party. And I know Mark can, um, you know, back me up on this. Back then, you would not have a list, a song list of what you're going to do, unlike bands today. So as a leader, you would turn around to the guys and you would motion with your fingers up. So any of the fingers that are up in New Jersey, <laughs> that's a New Jersey rule, they're in flats. Right. If the fingers are down, that's in sharp. Okay, so if I held two fingers up, we're in B flat. If I then cross my fingers, that's B flat minor. This was invented long before you and I were born. <laughs> but Absolutely if, right. <laughs> but if you go to Philadelphia or New York, it's the opposite. So <laughs> if, if you're working in those, those states and you give the, uh, the sign and you start playing in the wrong key, they're like, what are you doing? Oh, right. or I'm in the wrong terri uh, territory. So I remember I just turned around to you. You don't name the song. I just give the key. I give, okay, Foxtrot, two, a one, two, three, four. You start right in, you know, one, six, two, five, turn around, whatever. And I'm, okay, everyone in the club date field should know the song within the next, uh, I mean, the very first two or three notes. And I knew right away. And then if the piano player is using these substitute chords, you're right there. And I'm going, ah, oh, it's going to be a great night. So that's how we met. And I said, oh, man. I know I'm going to love working with this guy. And then I turned to you and say, can you sing a couple? Sure. What what genre? And any genre. You did it. So, <laughs> you know, you know, that was a great moment. Now we had quite an education doing that, didn't we? Oh, my God. You know, um, I feel like I have to mention, um, have you heard about that movie, Club Date Stories? Well, I haven't heard about the movie, but I remember... This was started years ago. If we're talking about the same thing, please let me know if this is correct. There's one musician. I don't have permission to use his name now because we haven't talked about it. And he was going around to every club date leader like myself or you or Sideman and saying, hey, do you have any funny club date stories? Right. Is this what you're talking about? That's what I'm talking about. You know, he finished the movie. This was a guy I worked with a lot in those days. And I understand that you can find it. Uh, the movie is on YouTube, Club Date <laughs> Stories. And he's, yeah, he's just interviewing people, you know, with these kind of stories. Um, but, you know, he's a filmmaker, so he edited it well. And it's, it's really quite something. And, you know, if you're a musician in New York, you've done this. You've played you know, like this. I've played with some of the best musicians in the world on, on these club dates. I've met all the guys from the, the television uh, shows. I remember one time going on a date in New York, a club date. It was a small big band, and the lead trumpet player turned around and said, Hi, Marvin Stamm. Now, I'm oh sure you God. know that name. I almost fell over. You know, he was on most of the records that I loved. And here he was sitting in front of me, playing on this date it was it was a great equalizer because the money was good and you didn't have to rehearse so if you were available at the last minute you could just you know come and, and fit into the gig and it made the musicians in new york better faster ear players than anywhere else Exactly. Because this tradition is really a, I, I, when i say new york you know i mean the new york new jersey area um it, it made us, uh, it gave us a skill set that no one else had because you didn't need that skill set anywhere else. 
Exactly. And when I tell people, I remember breaking into that field and like you and I working for, you know, one of the biggest um, club date offices in the New York, New Jersey area, they would say, okay, these are the standards that you have to learn in these keys. And I remember taking an entire summer practicing and trying to memorize like 500 songs. And when I tell people that they're saying, you're full of it. I said, no, you don't understand. This is serious stuff. Yep. And uh, so to piggyback on what you said about uh, the movie, which I got to check out, there's a, one of the stories that I went through. I would love to tell you right now, but <laughs> I'll tell you after the show is over. But in any event, I'm sitting down there serving us, you know, horrible sandwiches with, you know, <laughs> leftover toothpicks in them. <laughs> and so, you know, the stories are flying. And this one guy came in from Florida and he said, hey, you guys got any stories about, you know, club date bands or musicians? And we're sitting there, we're, we're throwing the stories back and forth. And he says, man, I just heard this story last week when I was in Tampa. He said there was a band leader that blah, 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 blah. And I started to turn white. I says, oh, my God, that was me. Wow. You. And by, you know, the way he told the story, it was like half true. So I had to tell him the real, you know, the way it went. Right. He says, oh, okay. And I'm going, Florida. It got all the way to Florida. Says, oh, yeah. That story and a story about this, a story about that. And I'm telling all these other stories. Oh, yeah, I heard that one. Yeah, I heard that one. And then they were telling us stories. Yeah, I heard that one from you. It, it's pretty wild. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> the musical grapevine. Yes, right. So, speaking of gigs, uh, what's your favorite type of gig to play? You know what? My favorite type of gig to play is any gig where people are paying attention to and enjoying the music. And I've had that happen, you know, in concerts. I've had that happen in restaurants. I've had it happen in clubs. I've had it happen at house parties. It's just about that magical moment when people tune in and you feel that connection that you're playing. So, you know, um, I won't say, oh, I love to play a concert or I love to play a trio gig. I mean, I love all of those things, but it's about connection with people. I do love to play trio gigs. I love to play with other musicians and have uh, unexpected things happen. But uh, it makes me happy anytime I'm playing and I feel like people are appreciating it. After all, how lucky are we? You know, we spend our lives creating a beautiful thing, which is music. And if we feel like people are hearing it and appreciating it, then we're doubly blessed. I agree. I'm, I'm right there with you. So what was the defining moment you knew you were really good at your craft, thus achieving your chops? <laughs> well, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, in 2000, I visited Brazil for the first time. One of my best friends that I've traveled around the world with said, hey, you know, I've got a business contact in Brazil and I have an invitation. My wife doesn't want to go. Are you interested in going to Brazil? Absolutely, I'm interested in going to Brazil. We had a wonderful trip. We went to Carnival um, and I made a great friend in Rio uh, who I'm still in touch with. But anyway, uh, while we were there, we went to a great jazz uh, club in Rio. It was called Mistura Fina. Uh, I understand they closed some time ago now. Uh, and there was a trio of Brazilian guys playing jazz, and I was introduced to them, and we knew a couple of musicians in common, and they said, hey, man, you know, why don't you come back and sit in? I said, well, careful what you ask for. And a night or two later, we came back, and I brought my guitar, and these guys did a, a funny thing, you know, where um, they called a couple of difficult, fast songs um, to see if I could keep up with them. And as soon as I did, they were relaxed and happy, and I played a whole set with these guys, including a lot of uh, Brazilian tunes that I love, and I was especially thrilled because, you know, getting to do this with Brazilians. At the end of the set, when we took a break, um, people in the audience came up to me and started gushing to me in Portuguese. 
and, and you know, I had to say, I'm sorry, you know, do you have any English? At that time, I didn't speak any Portuguese. And they were like, you're not Brazilian? Which was the greatest validation that I was playing Brazilian music authentically. And, you know, just a, a, a wonderful moment, a wonderful experience, uh, which, by the way, set me on the path of uh, learning to speak some Portuguese and learning to sing uh, many of these uh, great Brazilian classics in Portuguese. And to let my listeners know, you're absolutely brilliant at it. I mean, you're not just like, okay, phonetically you say it like this. No, you're the real deal. And I said, wow, that's fantastic. So, And the passion comes out, like I said before. When you do this stuff, you can see you're very passionate about it. So let me ask you, what do you wish you had known when you first started out in the music business? Wow, wow, wow. That's, that, that's a big one. Um, wow. Uh, you know, you, 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 just, you just shut me up, and that's hard to do, Scott. <laughs> um, well, there's kind of a lot of things that I wish I knew, but, you know, in a way, I think the biggest thing is that, you know, you should, you should seek your bliss, you know, if you're if you're happy and you're playing music that you love, it's everything is going to work. You know, um, and and that's the most important thing is finding you know what it is that you love and just pursuing that. You know, as opposed to you know being political or following trends or any of that stuff. It's just all about if you're happy and you can present that happiness in what you play, then I think uh, you're going to get over and, and people are going to love what you're doing. Mark has that ability to go from fingerstyle, classical guitar, he'll pick up his electric and just do some burning solos. And it was very fortunate to have him on my album a number of years ago called The Color of Midnight. And of which you could hear him at the top of my show, my intro and my outro, that's him playing. And the other thing that I loved about having uh, Mark in the studio, whatever music you put in front of him, he sight reads his butt off. He knows how to do it. Uh, and he likes any type of music. And he digs right in. And if you ask him, hey, can you inflect it this way, inflect it that way? There were a couple things that I did on my album that I was so impressed with you when I said to you, listen, I'm looking for this um, double guitar and saxophone lead like Tom Scott would do with Robin Ford. You knew exactly what I was looking for. We played together. Pitch was right there. Bang the notes. And you could see on your face like you were, you know, really into it. And I said, ah, and the performance was just absolutely great. So I can't thank you enough for those those tracks that you uh, played on. Oh, Scott, I had a ball playing on your album. Great tunes, and you're a wonderful arranger and uh, and producer. You knew exactly what you wanted, and you were able to express it uh, in a musical and understandable way. So that, that was a, a really fun thing, doing that with you. I'm honored to be a part of that. And you and I were uh, just so blessed to be at the same studio where Stevie Wonder, Frida Payne, Gladys Knight all recorded because that was Tony Camillo's studio in Hillsborough, New Jersey. Tony passed away yeah. a few years ago, 90 years old, and Tony was one of the uh, great writers and arrangers in Motown in the early days with Holland Dozier Holland. He was one of those guys. Right. Lots of great credit. To this day, I, I miss him dearly. He was just one of the best people in the world for me. What a mentor. Absolutely. What advice could you share with someone that's listening to you right now that's probably inspired by you? I'm sure they are. Dreaming or thinking about doing the same things as you? Wow. You know, uh, this is an interesting thing. And um, I, I use a quote that I uh, first uh, saw in an interview with uh, Mike Stern, uh, the great guitarist who played with uh, Miles when Miles came out of retirement. They asked Mike the same question, and he said, look, if you want to play music, forget about it. 
said, if you must play music because it's, you know, in your bones and nothing else will do, okay, now we have a place to start talking from. And, and I will say that. Um, you have to be, in order to pursue music as a career, you have to be so committed to it. It has to be something that you want more than anything else because the nature of the beast is that there's a great deal of sacrifice that goes into it. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't say that to discourage people. Um, you know, and I've been a music educator my whole life and I'm still uh, doing that with private students and yeah, I'm an adjunct faculty member at Ramapo College here in New Jersey. Um, I love to encourage people who want to uh, pursue this, but um, this is not like well, you know, maybe I'll go into, uh, maybe I'll get a business degree and go into marketing, or maybe I'll, you know, get an English degree and become an English teacher. It's not that sort of a career. There can't be a maybe about it. It's so uh, challenging uh, in so many different ways, in the competitiveness of it, in the demands of it, in the sacrifices that you'll make because it's uh, a difficult business that, you know, you have to know it's really what you want to do and you have to have that kind of commitment. And that's the only way I think that anyone will be happy with a career in music. Do you have any music events or do projects that are coming up that you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, sure. I, I have some steady uh, gigs that I'm doing. Um, I play every Wednesday night at the Old 76 House, which is America's oldest running tavern. It's in Tappan, New York, which is uh, right below Nyack, just over the border from New Jersey. It's a great restaurant. It's a very historical place. And uh, I'm there from 6.30 to 9.30 every Wednesday, uh, often uh, with a group. Uh, sometimes solo, but it's uh, always uh, a fun experience, um, you know, musically. Um, we don't always know what it will be. I also play as a soloist on Thursdays, uh, more down into uh, your neck of the woods in East Windsor, New Jersey. There's a wonderful restaurant called the Americana Kitchen and Bar. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah. You know, the place for really good food there. Very well run uh, restaurant. Um, um, in East Windsor, Americana Kitchen and Bar. Every Thursday, I'm there from 6 to 9. So th those are regular. Otherwise, I encourage people to um, like Mark Skanga Music on Facebook and or uh, drop me an email on my website, markskanga.com, and uh, I can put you on my email list because as concerts and things come up, um, we look forward to, uh, you know, inviting our friends and uh, having a lot of fun together. My wife, Elizabeth, says to say hi. Oh, send her my love. And she wanted me to remind everyone that uh, Mark did a phenomenal job at our wedding reception. Um, we're coming up on 10 years. Can you believe it? 10 wow. years. It goes by so quick. And, you know, we had a small little room that we rented in one of a, you know, in the area at a beautiful, great Italian place. And you just filled up that room with your vocals and your guitar and everyone still raves about it. Who was that guy? So I'm sure when they listen to this, oh yeah, that was at a Scott and Liz's uh, wedding. So you're, you're still being talked about. That's wonderful to hear, Scott. I remember the uh, event and it was uh, an honor to be there. Well, thank you. Mark, I can't thank you enough. I had such a great time interviewing you, introducing you to listeners of mine that might not know who you are. People in the industry obviously know who you are and respect you and, you know, love to play with you. And I miss playing with you. It's been some time, and I hope there's an opportunity where we can get together in the future again to do that. Absolutely. Let's make that happen. Thank you once again, Mark, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Scott. Peace and love to you and all the listeners out there. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for joining me on today's show. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and could hear why my guest got chops. Please spread the word to your family and friends about my podcast. And if you would like to discuss got chops in between episodes, 
you can reach me on Instagram at Got Chops Podcast and on Twitter at Grimaldi Music. I can also be reached on Facebook, Scott Grimaldi, The Color of Midnight. My website is grimaldimusic.com and the address for this podcast is anchor.fm slash gotchops. Before I conclude with today's show, I'd like to share a catchphrase of mine that you'll probably hear me say quite often, for I truly believe it sums up what every artist has in common in order to achieve their chops. And it goes like this. It's not my way, it's the way it is. Join me on the next episode when we discover why my next guest got chops. Chops.